right. Hey, I do welcome everyone today at all of our locations, and uh, it's such an exciting day to be in worship together. We're wrapping up in just a few minutes. We're going to wrap up this little letter called First Peter in our Bibles that we've been studying through. But before we get to that, uh, I have something extremely important that we want to do today. In fact, I'm going to take this important time to lead all of our locations through this small group survey. If you've been with us very long, you know that this is not something we do often at all. In fact, it's been years since I've done anything similar to this. But we want to reboot our small group ministry. This is at the core of who we are and how we go about making more and better disciples. And so I want to ask you to participate today at all of our congregations. Take this form out. And if you don't have one of these survey forms that I'm holding, please just slip your hand up and our ushers will try to quickly get one to you. I see a few hands here. Ushers, if you could just quickly get a form to them, that would be great. So we're going to carve out several minutes here to do this, so everybody just relax. I hope you won't be frustrated with this time. We will get to the message, and the good news is I'm adjusting the length of the message to accommodate this. Hallelujah, that's exciting. All right, I hope you have one of these in hand. If not, that you're keeping your hand up for just a moment while our ushers quickly get one of these forms to you. Now, just a couple of things as we prepare to do it. I know some of you have already been multitasking uh, during the worship time that you've had, or maybe you arrived early, you've already completed this. That's wonderful. You'll have a chance to turn it in in just a moment. And we will be turning these in literally in just a few uh, minutes. We want to receive them right away. The first thing you need to know is you only fill out one side of this. So quickly look, and on one side it says... I'm in a small group right now. If you are, if you're in one of those small groups of people, maybe three to 12 people, however big it is, okay? Sometimes they get beyond 12 people. But if you're in a group right now, you're active. Even if your group has taken a little sabbatical and maybe hasn't started yet for the fall, that's okay. You would qualify as I'm in a small group right now. The other side simply says, I'm not in a small group right now. So whichever of those statements best describes you, you only fill out that side of the form. Now, I'm going to stop talking in just a moment, let you have some quiet and peace so you can fill this out, but make sure you're completing the appropriate side of it. That's very important to us. We're going to tabulate all this information. It's going to be extremely helpful, I believe, as we reboot the small group ministry, literally change the culture, how we think about group life. So you go right ahead and, and just check the appropriate box, fill in the appropriate parts, and you do not need to sign your name. Just looking for honest and extremely candid responses.
I'm excited that some of you are actually having fun doing this. That amazes me. That's awesome. Just keep right on working. Doesn't take long, but if you'll just be diligent, you'll be, uh, you'll be finished in just a few moments. you continue to work you're doing great let me just reiterate once again lest there be any confusion you only need to fill out one side of this form each person should only fill out one side of the form whichever one applies to you all right How you doing? Doing well? See that many of you are finished. Good. Excellent. Okay. Now as you're wrapping that up, and again, you don't need to sign your name, just do another quick check over just to make sure that you got every section, if you would, please. Thank you for your participation with this. If you're still racing to fill out one part of it or maybe write a sentence or something like that, uh, just be sure that you get this in. Now, I'm going to ask our ushers to please come toward the front. They're going to start receiving these from you. Want to receive them right now. And uh, ushers, thank you for your excellent service in doing this. Thank you. I'm going to ask you just to pass these to the nearest aisle near you, all right, where our ushers are going to be there to pick these up. Ushers, please be thorough. I would encourage you to be thorough. Make sure you're getting all of these. Thank you so much for your participation. I believe it's well worth the minutes that we spent doing this survey. It's going to be enormously helpful to us. So thank you for serving us in that way so we can try to serve you a little bit better. Thank you so much for doing that. I was talking recently to a headhunter, someone who works for a search firm who tries to seek and find and make appropriate placements for good leaders for Christian colleges, universities, mega churches, that is very large churches around the United States. And this man has been at this for just about 40 years. 
He really knows his craft. He's an excellent, uh, what we proverbially or kind of colloquially call a headhunter. And he's seen a lot of things. And he said to me, uh, during the time that we were spending together on this project we were working on for an organization, he said, Rex, it's very difficult these days to find great leaders. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's easy to find someone who has the academic background you're looking for, maybe has a lot of uh, cool accomplishments and that kind of thing, but to find someone who has the kind of character and competence along with the chemistry you need to fit a particular organization is very, very challenging. And I've thought about that a lot since then, how critical leadership is in almost any endeavor. In fact, there's a saying that's become popular in our culture, everything rises and falls on leadership. And perhaps that's true. Show me your leader, and I'll show you your future. Show me your leader, and I'll show you where your organization, your group, your community is headed. Leadership is vital. Coaches often say, well, we had the athletes this year, but we just lacked that catalytic leader, that take-charge person when out on the field or out on the court, the chips are down and the stakes are high. We lacked that player this year who just had the leadership ability to step up and say, I'll take us home here. Leadership is very, very important. And probably no place is that statement more true than in the local church. And so as we wrap up this letter today, this study through 1 Peter, we want to talk about learning to lead, to follow, and to win. Because Peter, in this final what we call chapter, of course there were no chapters when he wrote it, that was added hundreds of years later, the chapter breakdowns and the verse breakdowns. But as he wraps up his letter, he says a quick word to the elders in the church. He says a word to those who are followers, and he talks then about spiritual warfare just a bit. So I want us to go on this journey today, and I'm going to be very brief and just hit the highlights as we talk about learning to lead, to follow, and to win. And I've been praying that God would make this message very personal, very relevant to you because all of us find ourselves either leading or following in life and all of us are involved in a spiritual battle. The first thing I would want you to see from Peter's letter here is that God gives leaders to the church to feed and protect the church. Let's start with chapter 5 verse 1 and see what he says. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory of God that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but voluntarily and not for sordid gain, right? So he's trying to get at their motivation here, but with eagerness, in other words, if God's called you to be a leader, don't be a slacker about that. Be eager, have a good attitude, have some enthusiasm. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge. Don't have an attitude that, well, I'm in charge here and everybody better just 
shape up and listen to me. Don't practice that because Jesus said the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Practice servant leadership is what Peter is saying, but proving to be examples to the flock. In a very real and profound way, leaders are to live lives worthy of emulating because more is caught than taught, right, when it comes to leadership. There's so many great principles here in this one passage that we could just camp out on. Our example speaks far louder than our words. In fact, it may shock some of you, but some of you have listened to me preach for a lot of years now, and I pray and hope a lot of years more, but I want to tell you something. You may not remember a single sermon I preach, but one thing you'll remember is how I live my life. One thing you'll remember is, was he faithful to his wife? One thing you'll remember is, how did he parent his children? How did he practice leadership? How did he steward all the influence that God gave? Because our actions, honestly, speak louder than our words. If we could put the text back up here. But proving to be examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the un fading crown of glory. Now, it's very interesting. In that passage that we just read there, Peter uses three different words to describe the elders in the church. Presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen. Those are three distinct Greek words, and I believe that he's using them here interchangeably to describe the leaders in the local church. Presbyteros, is the more generic term to de describe the role or the office of an elder or a church leader. Episcopos, normally translated overseer, is describing the function of an elder. The elder is to oversee the congregation and provide healthy leadership. And then the word poimen, which is often translated shepherd or pastor, is referring to the caregiving function that an elder or a leader in the church is to have. Presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen. Those aren't separate leaders. Those aren't separate offices. They're used interchangeably here to describe the same individuals, but to point to different things that these leaders are to do. Now, the role or office of elder goes way back in the history of God's people. If you go back, don't do it now, but if you go back to Numbers 11, you'll see an episode there where Moses was overburdened by the work and the responsibility he had of leading and counseling all those former Hebrew slaves who'd come out of bondage and were on their way to the promised land. And the Bible says there that they appointed 70 elders to share that responsibility of leadership and they were to take some of that load off of Moses and from that time on, the elders always had a prominent role in the history of Israel, in the history of God's covenant people. They became the advisors of kings. The elders were the friends of the prophets. The elders were the judges at the city gates. Uh, 
matters that needed someone to make an evaluation and a judgment, it was brought to the elders at the city gate, and they later became the administrators in the synagogue. They had a very vital role to play. Later, in the New Testament, elders were also vital. In fact, Paul says to Timothy in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, that you might appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So whenever a New Testament church was started, elders eventually, we don't know how long it took, but eventually elders were appointed in those churches that would help oversee the church and make sure the church had healthy, effective leadership. And never has leadership been as important or more important than it is today. And I would say to you that there are two key things that these elders were called to provide in their leadership. First of all, leaders are to see that the people are fed spiritually. Now, when we come together, I love it when we use all the latest and most effective technology. I love it when we have methods that are creative and we get the arts involved. I love it when we take care to try to be sensitive to people's needs and listen to people and provide caring options and so on. But the one thing that the elders to make sure happens, no matter what else happens, is that when people come together, like we're coming together right now, that here's the reality. The table is spread, plenty to eat, nobody has to go away spiritually hungry. And that has been a priority of myself and our elders at Grace for all of these years now. The table is set, plenty to eat, nobody has to go away hungry. If we're not connecting the eternal word of God to the specific needs of people, then we're totally missing the mark. So elders are to make sure that that is happening, that people are being spiritually fed. That is vital to our growth because we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. People are starving today spiritually because everywhere they look is all kinds of junk food. Spirituality, but is it rooted in Christ and is it rooted in biblical truth? And that brings us to a second thing that these elders were to do. That is, they're to see that the people are properly, properly protected from false teachers and dangerous influences. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that God chose sheep as a metaphor for his people. I find that kind of curious. All throughout the Old Testament, here in the New Testament, Jesus used this. Uh, he referred to his people as the, the flock under his care. The, and he's the great shepherd. In fact, in the passage that we looked at, Peter called Jesus the chief shepherd who one day will come back, who one day will appear. Now, it's not a very flattering image, to be honest with you. Because just about every animal in God's kingdom has sort of some defense mechanism. Whether it's a bull with his horns, whether it's a cheetah with his speed, uh, whether it is a lion 
who doesn't need anybody to take care of him. Uh, whether it's a skunk with a really bad smell he can spray on people or a porcupine with those incredibly sharp quills, just about every animal has some sort of protection mechanism, right, for defense. But not sheep. Sheep are pretty helpless without a shepherd. And it's interesting to me that God chose that metaphor because I think it's an apt description of how many people are without careful, godly, effective leadership. They're like sheep without a shepherd. In fact, look at this interesting passage where Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. Now, Ephesus was a city that Paul spent a good amount of time in, probably more time than any of the cities on his journeys. He had been there for quite some time, teaching, leading, providing great oversight. And notice what he says, keep watch over yourselves. By the way, he's having a tearful departure when he says this. He's leaving them and moving on for another city. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds, there's your word, of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day, uh, night and day with tears. And it's my observation, brothers and sisters, that so many people, especially those who may be newer to the faith and just beginning in Christ or maybe exploring what this is all about, they are so easily duped and led astray. So the church needs leaders. Because there's a sense in which everything rises and falls on leaders. And when people ask me, and I just got asked again this week, what's the key to this church? After I always give the real answer, a sovereign God who chose to blow our minds and do something amazing that we cannot explain in human terms. That's the real answer. But that never satisfies anybody. They want to know more. And I often mention the amazing leaders God has brought to this church. Women and men with insight and wisdom and capability and competence who just keep showing up and leading God's people. And I praise God for them. And all of you who are leading at all of our locations, I thank God for you and pray for you regularly. But then Paul turns his attention in verse 5 to followers. I want us to see next, the congregation's response to the leaders should be cooperation. And by the way, before we look at verse 5 here, I just want to say that it just hit me. For those of you who are wondering, how can I make a difference with my life? Pastor Rex, I, I'd like to get plugged in here. I'd like to really make a difference. I know of no better way to help us move the mission forward of more and better disciples than for you to become a small group leader. You say, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Well, maybe you could consider being an apprentice leader, a leader in training, 
getting ready to actually disciple a group of men and women, to, to lead a group, to facilitate, or maybe to host a group in your home if you have a home that would be conducive to that. I would really ask you to consider that because there's nothing more at the heart of who we are and this disciple-making process, as we attempt, by God's power, to move men and women from exploring Christ to beginning in Christ, to getting close to Christ, and finally, becoming fully Christ-centered people. That's the most important thing you could possibly do. Verse 5 goes on to say, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All of us need the humility to follow. In fact, I would say to you that the test of Christianity is not how you lead when you're in charge. The real test of your Christian spirit is how you follow when you're not in charge. And here's what I've noticed. That those people who have the grace to humbly follow usually become the most amazing leaders. Because they understand not only leading, but they understand following. They not only have the grace to lead people and give direction when that's needed, but they have the humility and the understanding to be a great follower. Boy, I want to be both. I want to learn both. And one of the greatest blessings, again, I'll say in this church to me, is the amazing women and men, many of whom have leadership positions out there in the community, out there in the capital region. They have enormous influence, some of them incredible jobs, and yet as they come in with brothers and sisters in this setting, Many of them serve in a very humble kind of role year after year after year. That is so impressive. It's unbelievable. God's best leaders are those who know how humbly to follow. And again, I just want to praise you, congregation, Grace Fellowship, all of our locations. For those of you who are so cooperative in your spirit, one of the reasons that God is able to do such incredible things here is that there's not a lot of strife and division, if you know what I mean. There's not a lot of time wasted fighting and bickering over trivia. We just try to keep the main thing the main thing, and leaders are in an environment, for the most part, where they are truly free to lead. He's told us how to lead. He's talked to us about following but I want us to wrap up today by giving a few minutes to this issue of winning in this spiritual battle. Would you look with me at these verses, starting, I believe, in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be alert. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, 
who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then he gives a doxological ending. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're not going to look at it today, but he goes on to finish this little letter. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firmer in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And thus he finishes this little letter. But let's go back and talk for a moment about this whole battle thing that we're in. One of the most important things, if we're going to live the way he wants us to live until Jesus returns, and that's what this series has all been about, how to live until Jesus returns, we've got to understand that we're in a war. We're in a battle. And if, if we don't get that, there's a sense in which we're, frankly, just kind of clueless. So let's talk for a minute about the identity of this adversary of ours, the identity of the adversary. You know, uh, I've talked to a lot of people who have trouble believing in a literal devil, this being that Peter refers to here, the devil, when he says he prowls about like a roaring lion. And they think that the devil is just a personification of evil. You know, like Uncle Sam is a personification of patriotism. The devil is a personification or a representation of all that is evil. And they have trouble believing in a literal devil because they immediately think of the guy in the red suit with the pointed tail and the pitchfork and the horns and that's the popular caricature. And so they just kind of laugh it off. In fact, I would say, I would say that one of Satan's greatest accomplishments, and by the way, he has a number of names in Scripture, but it's the same being, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, the deceiver, the enemy. I mean, the list goes on and on. One of his greatest accomplishments is to get himself to look so ludicrous that many people don't take him Seriously, one little boy was asked in Sunday school if he believed in the devil. He thought for a minute and said, no, I think it's kind of like Santa Claus. It's your dad, right? Well, many people have trouble believing in the devil, but there are 140 references scattered over 26 different books in the Bible that refer to a literal being called the devil. That's a lot of references, folks. The biblical writers took him seriously. In fact, Jesus himself took the devil seriously. Look at what he says in John 8, 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he uh, there's no truth in him. When he, he, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus took Satan very seriously. What we're saying here is that our battle is not against the communist in the Far East. 
Our battle is not against the terrorists in Iraq. Our main battle is not against the pornographers in New York City or against liberals in Washington. There is a real enemy that is out to kill and steal and destroy our lives. I hope we understand that. Now he's coming to an end. Revelation chapter 20 reads like this. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. It says they will be tormented night and day forever and ever. But unless we understand that this being is real, we're not even prepared to win the battle. But I would mention then his strategy, the strategy of the devil. And in one word, I would say his strategy is deception. Jesus said he's a liar. That's a pretty good source, Jesus. He's a deceiver. He's the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He is deceptive. And that is his strategy or his M.O. A hungry lion doesn't stand out in the savannah and uh, roar at the top of his lungs and say, come to me, I want to eat you alive. No. A lion, a hungry lion, prowls, right? He studies that antelope. He studies his ways. He, he knows where the watering hole is and he crouches in the bushes, ready to pounce and devour. He knows the habits. He knows the migration patterns. Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar who taught at Moody Bible Institute for decades, says the, the growl here, this roaring lion, is the cry of a beast intensely hungry for blood. That's what the Greek word means. And he's deceptive. He knows our weaknesses just like he studies that antelope, he studies your every move because he wants to take you down. You say, Pastor, are you asking us to become paranoid? No, just to be wise and know that you've got a deceptive enemy. I heard about a Yankees fan that was walking beside the Mohawk River recently and uh, he saw an old bottle that looked really unusual kind of drifting by in the river. He pulled it out of the water began to clean it up, wash it up, and rub it a little bit, and out popped a genie in Red Sox gear. This is amazing, isn't it? I mean, the genie said, I am your Red Sox genie, and I'm here to give you three wishes. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. But there's one stipulation. Whatever you ask for, every Red Sox fan in New York State is going to get twice what you ask for. The Yankees fan said, well, that doesn't bother me. I'm not prejudiced against Red Sox fans at all. That's fine. He said, uh, my first wish is I would like a million dollars. And the Red Sox genie said, you've got it. It's in your bank account right now. But you need to remember that every Red Sox fan in upstate New York, all over the state of New York, has now $2 million in their bank account. He said, that's fine. I have no problem with that. I harbor no ill will against Red Sox fans. Said my second wish is I would like a $5 million home 
with a big swimming pool. Jeannie said, it's yours right now. It's right over there in that forest. But you need to remember that every Red Sox fan in New York now has a $10 million house with two big pools. So it's no problem at all. I'm not, it doesn't bother me a bit. Jeannie said, what's your third wish? I said, for my third wish, I'd like for you to beat me half to death. Now, the devil's kind of like that. He's deceptive. He'll give you the idea he harbors no ill will against you. If you just do things my way, life will be wonderful. But he's out to steal and kill and destroy. The bottom line here is that God has made you to win. You're a winner. He's made you to overcome the wiles and the deceptions of the devil. 1 John 4, 4 puts it like this. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you, the one who is in you is God the Holy Spirit indwelling you, God himself in you. The one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. Who's the one in the world? The devil. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the prince of this world. And God has given you all you need to be victorious. So as we wrap this letter up today in this abbreviated message, I want to just say that when it comes to living and how we live until Jesus returns, Peter has said some amazing things to us. I mean, he's challenged us to the core of our being He's reminded us of who we are in Christ, and he's reminded us of all that Jesus has done for us. Above all, I pray that we'll live grateful lives, grateful that he's called us to serve the king of this universe, and that we'll walk in victory day by day, letting our life be our very ministry. Father, thank you for this incredible little letter called 1 Peter what it means to us, the truth that it contains, the power in these words as your spirit has brought them to life these weeks. I pray in Jesus' name that for every Christ follower at each of our congregations that you would use this study to bolster our faith, to increase our courage, and to heighten our tenacity to follow you moment by moment day after day. We want to represent you well as we go about the mission of making more and better disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Ushers, would you please come and serve us today by receiving